Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today for Wednesday, May 25th. Uh, really heavy hearts and kind of clouded minds after uh, another mass shooting and a mass elementary school shooting of grade twos, threes, and fours in the state of Texas. We have to talk about it, and we've got to come up with a way to gauge our emotions about it. It's nothing that should be ignored, but I get how heavy it is. Uh, we'll talk to former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh about the shooting itself. We'll talk about it amongst ourselves as a show. Uh, and we'll also talk about the two-year anniversary of George Floyd uh, with Michelle Gross uh, from Minneapolis as uh, she's long been an advocate against police brutality. And uh, and I think we need to get a lay of the land as to what's changed in two years since that happened. And it, we forget how long it took for charges to be laid in that particular case. And were the appropriate charges laid against the other three officers? So lots to do on the show. Thanks very much for checking us out. Toronto Today starts now. We've been through an awful lot. We've been through an awful lot in uh, in the last two years. And um, it made me realize that I revisited some of the video um, from 2012 with the Sandy Hook shooting. And I remember doing, obviously, sports radio then and thinking what to say and uh, and how to keep emotion in check. And then I thought, why keep the emotion in check? Why not be validated by how real you actually are? And if you try, remember, there's a fine line. If you try too hard to be authentic, what are you? Kind of prepackaged, kind of pre-produced. And um, that's never how my conversations have gone. I I love going out for lunch with somebody because I never know where the conversation's going to go. Someone may have an intent on a conversation and I'll steer them uh, off to the to the other side. And believe it or not, I love to sit there and uh, and listen sometimes way more than I like to talk. And I did a lot of listening yesterday to coverage of this from the United States. I tried to look at this from our perspective as well um, in terms of this horrific shooting in America. And uh, and I watched a television reporter. I told you we were at uh, at a barbershop last night and my kid and I just had the best time. I wouldn't have had as good a time without him. And if I dropped him off and, you know, gone for errands or something or just sat in the car like so many of us do and and uh, diddled on my phone, if you will, though I was I felt like I was, you know, we were at the barbershop way longer because there were like seven, eight people ahead of us. And I thought I'm behind the times. So I was up late working and watching stuff and processing watching a little bit of the hockey game, a little bit of the basketball game, but obviously this deadly shooting at the Texas elementary school um, just dwarfed most of the enjoyment of all that. And, uh, and I, I, I can't even wrap my head around this idea anymore of 19 kids and two adults being killed in a shooting at a school, by the way, that there's only grade twos, threes, and fours. There's only grade twos, threes, and fours. That's an oddity, right? There's junior highs in um, the United States, and this was in Uvalde, Uvalde, Texas. And a fourth grade teacher uh, with the first name of Eve was identified as one of the two adult victims. And sometimes, um, you know how your teachers feel like larger than life when you're a little kid, when you're six years old and you're seven years old. And uh, and they seem, they, everybody, all adults, you can't tell how old anybody is. If you ask a seven-year-old, you'd think a 45-year-old was 28 and a 28-year-old was 45. But I picture somebody young. I don't know why I do that. I picture a fourth grade teacher, like some of my teachers, uh, my kids' teachers, I should say, who we have parent-teacher conferences with, and I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm like, 
some of them seem contemporaries and some of them seem <laughs> two decades younger than me because they might be. Um, and I, I just picture a, a young woman who's got a lot of teaching ahead of her and now she doesn't. And I picture 19 sets of parents. Who knows? Um, some, you know, nuclear families, father, mother, maybe some kids have two mothers. Maybe some kids have two fathers. Maybe some kids are, have divorced parents. Um, and those kids went to school. They started getting up around this time yesterday to go to school. And although it's the United States, the most unique place on the planet for this kind of thing to happen, they still go. They still go. And you make the assumption that you'll be okay. You make the assumption that you'll come home in the afternoon. They'll have a good day there. They're, they're getting out for summer break. Uh, at this age, earlier, obviously, than we're used to. But we know we're, we're getting to that point in time where I've got an eighth grader we're going to go buy a suit for. And we're going to there's going to be a proper graduation this year. And it's not related to all that we've been through for 27, 28 months. And we've hardly been through it together. But they're just every time there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. Something like this happens somewhere. And it makes it makes me feel like we're really broken and busted up. And there's a lot of things lately for me that I go, why am I so lucky? Why are the people around me so lucky? I feel lucky to have them. I'm flattered that people in my life feel lucky to have me in it. And I just think there was 19 kids that you you end up nurturing and growing and developing and not always seeing eye to eye with your partner as to how to parent them and not always seeing eye to eye with those kids. But when they're that age, when they're seven, eight, and nine, all you see is that baby still. You don't see it as much sometimes when you got a 16-year-old and you probably don't see it as much. I've, I always want to ask my parents, how did you know it was okay for me to go to university? How did you know it was okay to send my my middle sister? I have two younger sisters, but our our my middle sister away to school in the United States at age eighteen on a field hockey scholarship. We all played sports, we all were athletic, but she was the special one, and she's made her living from you know coaching field hockey, playing field hockey, done this her whole life. How did you know that that was okay? How do you send your? It's always your baby. Your kid is always your baby. I've got two of them. And the goal, and we've said this through COVID, you'd run into a moving car to shove them out of the way. You'd give your life for theirs. And there's 19 to 38 parents that feel exactly that way this morning. Exactly that way. And they never had a chance to make that deal. They never had a chance to put themselves in the line of these particular bullets. And I remember uh, Sandy Hook really, really well. I remember it really, really well because two things changed about Sandy Hook. And one was that we just said never again. We said never again in our society about these things happening. And even for my kids in elementary school, and if I recall correctly, uh, my kids were going into third grade and first grade. So again, they're in that demographic of these kids that were blown to bits yesterday. They're in that demographic. And they suddenly put like a buzzer on the school. You couldn't just walk into the principal's office and go, hi, I'm here to pick up some homework. 
hi, I'm here to volunteer for scientists in the school. I don't know anything about science, but here I am. You could you couldn't do that as easily. And Sandy Hook influenced the elementary school for security purposes where my kids went. I was shocked that that happened. And uh, almost universally, you thought change would come from this. And I'm confident change comes from this. So maybe I'm the innocent one. Maybe I'm the babe in the woods. Maybe I'm the naive one. Ashley Banfield covered Ashley, uh, rather Sandy Hook uh, for MSNBC at the time in 2012 and had these thoughts on uh, News Now yesterday. I drove with a photographer to Sandy Hook and set up outside Sandy Hook. So what I'm seeing on the screen right now is extraordinarily reminiscent of what I saw in 2012. Um, it's identical. This is a playbook now that we can all follow. You'll get aerial shots of uh, law enforcement officers outside the elementary school as they start to process the dead. The bodies are still in there, Nicole. Those children's bodies are still in there. And they will be there for quite some time as those law enforcement officers stop, start dropping little orange cones all over that building where they find bullets and evidence and fragments and body parts of babies. Where's the lie? That's what it is. If we don't start to get graphic and real and uh, not sanitize every little bit of information about something like this. And I'll talk more about this at the top of the hour at seven o'clock with the element of toxicity that's creating these things. You weren't surprised that this happened yesterday. You're just shocked. And there's two different things. Surprised isn't shocked and shocked isn't surprised. Banfield went on to make the note that we've learned very, very little in almost 10 years time. It is felt by everyone in America who had to stomach the fact that little children were blown to bits in their classroom, one after the other, by a teenager. Adam Lanza was a young man who went to that school, right? Adam Lanza killed his mother and then took off for the school. And this young man at 18, allegedly killing his grandmother and then going to the school. Adam Lanza killed himself. I am only assuming that maybe this young, uh, troubled individual at 18 maybe killed himself. I don't know. I know there's an exchange of gunfire, but Chris Murphy is right. What the hell are we doing? I am an immigrant to this country. This doesn't happen in Canada, where I'm from. I love my country. I am a citizen here, but I cannot sit by and continue to report on these stories. And let me tell you, I loved it in the United States. I loved it. We were a walk away from an elementary school called Ulysses S. Grant after the famous uh, general. There's only one. And we were another walk away from Livonia Franklin High School. And I would have been so proud to stay there. I loved my job. I loved living in Michigan at the time. And I, I would have been so proud to stay there and have my kids go to both those schools. We left when my first son was two years old and we were five months pregnant with our next. It was time to go. And an opportunity was calling in Toronto. But it was, it was a relief to think about that yesterday, as it was in Sandy Hook 10 years ago. And there's been no progress. If anything, we're going backwards. We're not stuck in neutral. We're going backwards on things like this. And I think about that teacher Eve, who I don't know why. I picture her at 28, 29, years of teaching to go, 30 more years to teach little seven and eight-year-old boys and girls. And I think about the 19 kids that don't come home 
And the 19 kids that they, they, you know, little coffins. I hate that concept. Little coffins, not regular size coffins. I'm supposed to be buried in a regular size coffin. So are you. So are most people. Little coffins that go into the ground because of the age of the kids. And it's really hard to stomach. And I want almost every politician to do something. And at the same time, I want them to STFU because there's no words anymore that mattered to me if there's not going to be action that follows them. Our next guest uh, was a U.S. congressman from Illinois when Sandy Hook happened in office uh, in uh, in Washington, D.C., and he hosts a podcast now called uh, White Flag, which is a brilliant podcast. I love having him on. He shoots it so straight. He is Joe Walsh. Joe, um, I always enjoy having you on. I, uh, I like having you on in normal circumstances, but these are heavy, heavy circumstances, obviously. And I reference you being in Congress at that point in time, and you must have thought a lot about that in the last 18 hours or so uh, and Sandy Hook and some of the terrible imagery that um, it's it's a it's a playbook. It's right out of a sporting event, isn't it? Hey, absolutely, Greg. Great to be with you. Uh, and this, this look, this happens too often in this country. Yes, that's true. We all say it. Uh, and then we go through the same damn exercise every time it happens. You know, everybody goes to their corner and screams their political takes and everybody demands do something do something it's time to act and very few people act and very few people know what that means so we got to grow up down here in america greg and and roll up our sleeves and really try to get some stuff done i watched one of the dads who lost a daughter a 10 year old beautiful girl in uh the parkland shooting in 2018 and I watched a clip of him with Laura Ingram. And I'm not going to, you know, again, I'm no, I'm not watching Laura Ingram every night. You might have guessed that. But I saw his clip and he documented and he said, parents have to start getting a little louder. He's not placing the blame on the parents, but he is placing the onus on the parents to get security at schools. Listeners have made the point. We got armed security guards protecting uh, the gap in Abercrombie and Fitch. And you and I have to walk through metal detectors to go to a Toronto Raptors or Chicago Bulls game on a random Tuesday night. Shouldn't we be doing the same thing for where our kids go to school? I'd argue yes, and I think that dad is right. Hell yes, Greg. Hell yes. This is something I've been advocating now ever since Sandy Hook. Uh, You talk about a soft target. You and I have talked about this. Um, Any bad, evil, sick person can do what this bad, evil, sick 18-year-old did yesterday because it's such a soft target. Um, and it, look, I, I know the left in America recoils at that. You know, we should let teachers or administrators be trained and armed, or we should have, you know, one point of entry in every school. But we should certainly do whatever we have to do to make that facility, these facilities, more secure. And we even have done that with universities. I remember being on the air in Detroit the morning after uh, the Virginia Tech shooting when, you know, that's almost like pre-YouTube. It's pre-social media. It's pre-all this stuff. And that that maniac releases that video manifesto. And the great debate is, should the news networks even broadcast it? And But I remember university security is tighter than where we send our kids to kindergarten. And I don't have a good answer as to why. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Uh, it's, it's a matter of, uh, let's be honest, also money and resources. We're talking about a hell of a lot of schools mm-hmm. littered throughout this country. And in America, education, Greg, is primarily a state and local issue. Most of the funding school-wise in, in this country is at the state level. But, you know, it's, 
Look, uh, it's really, really hard to stop every incident like this. Um, and the left, and they mean well, right away they want to go after the gun. And right away people on my side, the right, recoil against anybody who goes after the gun. But this debate that we always have, Greg, after one of these loses us to all the other things that we should be looking at, including what you just raised here, mm-hmm. making schools more secure. Joe Walsh is our guest on Toronto today. His podcast is called White Flag. Um, I, I, and I, I bring this up, too. You made the point yesterday. Uh, you're, you're a gun owner. This has to be more about background checks. Is there a reason? Chris Murphy from Connecticut was very impassioned about H.R. 8. Um, that that creates that, you know, that closes some of the loopholes. It would have closed the loophole that allowed the Charleston shooter to yeah. buy his gun. Yeah. We don't know yet all the facts in about where this particular uh murderer yesterday got his gun but like we need to talk about background checks and closing loopholes rather than banning specific guns that's not that's just not going to roll politically is it no 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 And, and and i know a lot of the rest of the world won't freaking understand this but tough this is america we have a huge gun culture in this country we have a second amendment it's there for a good reason 99.9 percent of all gun owners in this country are responsible law-abiding gun owners um focusing on banning certain types of guns is a non-starter in this country and we so, so practically it ain't happening but it shouldn't happen we should all Greg, I'm a big gun owner. I'm a big gun rights guy. I'm with all of you, everybody who says universal background checks, tighten up background checks. We should do everything under the sun to make sure that somebody who shouldn't have a gun doesn't get a gun. That's where our focus has to be. When when that incident happens yesterday, I want to wind the clocks back even, Joe, to Buffalo. You, uh, If I said this happened, describe who you think the shooter is. You and I would get it most times. We got smart listeners. You got smart podcast yeah. listeners. Most people would get it. These aren't 52-year-old NRA owners who, uh, you know, th- this isn't oh. Michael Douglas and falling down. These aren't women. These We know who these will be. These will be young um, you know, uh, men uh, who are maybe victims of abuse. Mostly they white. don't have a father figure. There's yeah. an element of toxic masculinity to this, regardless of race. Even this is a huge. Do we have a huge problem in our society with young men? Andrew Yang made this point last week, and I and he made it on the campaign trail trying to get the Democratic nomination. We're losing a lot of young men through the cracks, and it's not to absolve them by their actions. Everyone should be held accountable by their actions. But if we don't acknowledge there's a problem. Stuff like this, I almost said something else, is going to keep happening. Uh, Completely, my friend, completely. Um, Lonely, uh, uh, ignored, bullied, no no male presence in the home, uh, a a complete loner, lives in their basement. I mean, these profiles reflect almost almost every single mass shooter, 18 to 25 or 6 or 7-year-old men. Mm -hmm. But again... The, the, the stupid debate, and it is stupid, that we have in this country is so binary. Uh, get rid of guns, uh, uh, don't touch my gun. And that's all we do whenever any of this happens, and we don't talk about security at the schools, and we don't talk about all the great stuff you're bringing up right now. Focus on who the shooters are, what's going on with these young men, mental health, and all the rest.
it blinds us because we're so guns or no guns. We're about five months out from the midterms and midterms, Joe, I don't need to tell you this. They're always a reckoning. They're reckoning for popular presence. They were reckoning for uh, Barack Obama in 2014. They were reckoning for Bill Clinton with, with Newt Gingrich as, uh, as House leader in 1994 off his 92 election. I just see a freight train coming and and even even the challenges to Roe v. Wade, even this. I watch the polls really closely. They're not moving the needle. It does anything preserve the House or the Senate for the Democrats in November. I say this as a former lifelong Republican. Democrats are going to get spanked this November. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't that doesn't make me happy. And look, Greg, I got elected in Obama's first midterm and Obama in the Democrats. Right that midterm yeah everything is against the democrats but the democrats have blown it these last couple of years and they're completely utterly out of touch with where most regular working class americans are which is almost sinful greg when you think of how horrible uh my former political party the republicans have become with their attacks on democracy but yeah democrats will probably get spanked and have you seen have you seen that semi related to covid i'd make that case joe i'd have parents telling me in december i lean left more than right but here's what i want i went and got vaccinated i want you to leave my family alone i want you to let me judge what's safe and what's not safe i want you to let me live like the adult that i am with my partner or not with my partner and a lot of democratic politicians like the governor of new york for example or the mayor in New York, for example, just don't seem to know how to do that. And and people are now one issue voters based on that. That's what I hear. That's what I expect to see in November. Hey, Greg, I give you a lot of credit because you have been consistent on this throughout this pandemic. And I think you're spot on. I think the Democratic Party in this country and Democratic interest groups in this country advocated for and kept things locked down and kept our kids out of school for too damn long. They were overly cautious with this thing. And yes, they're going to pay at the polls because of it. When does your uh, chat? I can't wait to hear your chat with David Hogg. It's, I know it's going to be heavy listening, but important listening. When do you have that up on the podcast? Uh, next week. It'll come out next week. And Greg, I was just blown away by this, uh, how how committed and passionate and what a great young American this kid is. And and again, what a weird day. I sat mm-hmm. down with him yesterday morning and I left that conversation with such hope. I mean, he and I on guns and we found some common ground. And then like you and all of us, I go to bed last night just grieving, 19. 19- yeah, you're 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 a father of five and a, and and a and a true and dedicated father at that, and you want what's best uh, for your country. Thank you very much for getting up early, making the time for me on short notice. You always pick up the phone love when you, we man. call. I'm a Greg Brady fan. I love you. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Uh, you're again. You've got 52 percent of the uh, public agreeing with you and 48 percent disagreeing. That's all it takes. That's all it takes in North America uh, to ru- to rule the roost. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks. Joe Walsh, former uh, congressman, joining us on uh, Toronto Today. Well, he feels that. Well, we'll put him down as undecided. All right, this next bit of audio made a lot of people uh, angry. Let me defend the parent here, not just because of the pain he's been through and not just because this is obviously a tragedy that's going to be politicized. We saw it front and center uh, in Buffalo last week. Uh, but this this audio leaps off the page for me as being something that could easily be misunderstood. 
Uh, Andrew Pollack uh, is a parent that lost his daughter in the Parkland, Florida shootings and said this about school security. Now, again, if he says it on a different network to a different host, maybe it's viewed differently through the lens of, of course, we can talk about gun laws, but also this. And I don't know that he's wrong about this in particular. I think he's wrong about one aspect of this, and I'll explain it at the end. But Andrew Pollack said this on Fox News to Laura Ingram last night. What I advocate a lot is because I get a lot of messages from parents. It's the parents. It's your responsibility where you send your children to school. You have to know now after these shootings and every week there's a shooting that you need to check where your kids go to school. You need to go back to the school and see, is there a single point of entry? Do you have guards at the school? I got a message tonight made me feel kind of good from someone. They told me thanks. They thanked me because they listened to me and they sent, they took their kid out of public school and put him in a, in, in a private school because a lot of these private schools, they take security way more serious. So parents, it's your responsibility ways where you bring your children and, and you have to know. Okay. Listen, uh, he's right about that. Beyond the gun loss, he's right about that contextualization that you should ask questions. A lot of schools are safer than they were after Columbine. A lot more schools than that are safer after Sandy Hook. Hell, I just explained in Durham region, my own kid's school is quote unquote safer, but I don't give it a second thought about a shooter coming to a school in Durham region. I don't, I I don't, I don't have the bandwidth for it, but I would, if I lived in Texas or Georgia or Florida or Michigan, where I lived or Ohio, I would. And he's not wrong. He lost his daughter because a school wasn't prepared. There has to be an element of that. We're not talking about arming teachers. We're not talking about kids hiding under desks and doing drills constantly, but he isn't wrong. What he's wrong about is it's really easy to take your kid out of public school and go to private school. Tons of parents can't afford uh, to go to private school. So I think that makes some sense. Sheba Siddiqui joins me right now. Um, boy, you, I don't know anybody who's more uh, a, a more passionate parent than you are. I think we're equal in terms of parenting passion. So we talk about things and we agree on a lot of things and we'll have our fun arguments about a lot of parenting stuff. Um, what do you make of that comment from Andrew Pollack? I understand it. I think, look, we I don't, don't. Well, we don't want to let our 10 year olds go down to the corner store without a, a bike helmet and a partner and a buddy and a cell phone and, and a GPS device and all this stuff. So we should care what our, our kids' school security is like. The last thing that should be on your uh, a focus and on your radar is whether a shooter would be coming into your child's school. That's not something that you should be worrying about when you're considering a school location. And forget the private and the public. Like, that's just... Uh, uh, yeah, I agree. That, that, that's... On that. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, that you, a parent shouldn't have to be thinking about that. And, yes, you're right. There are certain states that if I were living in, it would cross my mind. But I have to tell you, when I, when I saw and read about this yesterday, uh, that's the first place my mind goes. Well, what about my kid's school? And I... No parent should be having to think about this. Something needs to change. I don't know what that is. But, I mean, it's happened. It's happened in Canada. We can't just say, oh, it doesn't happen here. Of course it's happened. Look at Ecole Polytechnique. Uh, there was Dawson College in 2006. Uh, W.C. Jeffries in 2007. It's happened in our country. And granted, sure, it doesn't happen as much as it does in the, in the United States. I mean, I have a stat here from 2020 uh, where... 79% of homicides in the U.S. were gun-related killings. Uh, that's 79%. Mm -hmm. 79% mm -hmm. versus in Canada, it was 37%. 
So yes, there is a huge discrepancy there, but I don't want to be when I'm shopping for a house and I'm house hunting, looking for my dream house, my dream neighborhood, finding a great school. I don't want to have to think about safety in case a shooter comes into my kid's school. That shouldn't have to be on my list as a parent. Where can they escape to? How many doors of entry are there in the school? No, if that's what parents are thinking about when they're thinking about great schools and great neighborhoods, something has to change. But the practicality, if it doesn't change, is your kid goes to a school for a finite time, four years to a high school, nine or ten years to an elementary school. You should ask questions. You should want to know. You should get that information. And you should feel it's as safe as it could possibly be. And I can't I can't walk my kid to the classroom or or walk over and watch him play at recess every single day. So there's a practice. You're right from a um, a. Uh, a leg- like a a a, um, a a hope perspective, but from a practicality perspective, the father's right. He, he he's right that parents should look into these schools and say, "Is my kid? Are you doing every single thing you can?" And this school wasn't. The school wasn't up to snuff for that. I just I don't think that should be on your radar. And yes, you're right. We should now because that's the first place my mind went right after hearing about these. It just it makes me physically feel ill. When, when things like this happen involving children, it makes me feel ill. So after, you know, and there's, there's just so much coming out. There's going to be so much that comes out today as well. So much new information. Mm-hmm. Now we're at 19 kids, right? That's the latest 19. update. 19 have passed away. Now his grandmother is still in the hospital. I thought she had died. So he initially tried, he shot his grandmother first. She's in critical, con- critical condition in the hospital. But I mean, I, I don't want to think about this with my school. And you're right. Now that this has happened, that's where my mind goes. That's where every parent is going to go. They're going to think, be thinking about that. I hate it when my kindergartner comes home from school and says, oh, we, yeah, we, we, had a, we had a drill today. I'm like, what? A drill? A drill, mommy. And then he explains to me that he had to go under his desk and what happened. This is at five years old. It, this is horrific to me. And explaining it, too. Like, he has to explain it to you. The teachers have to explain it um to to the hims and hers out there and you know we'd go out you and me would go out for a fire drill and we'd think great 10 minutes out of class what are the odds that there's ever going to be a raging inferno engulf our elementary how bad is how bad an accident is there going to be in the science lab but but in the united states this is on parents minds regularly and and my my sandwich period is moving there just before Columbine happened. I told you about driving around Denver uh, when right two weeks after Columbine and they had just started playing um, playing hockey and nobody knew when when to even move after that. And then and then Sandy Hook is after I leave. So we went through a long period of time where we're like, OK, maybe there's been some lessons learned. And when we go right from I, I saw a reporter last night say I just got back from Buffalo. I just got back from covering Buffalo. And now I'm going to go to Texas and cover this like it is. Don Lemon made the point last night on CNN. I watched a little bit of it. I was flipping around the network, Sheba, and and he said, um, I, I, I couldn't wait to leave Sandy Hook. And I, I, you know, I kicked myself for that selfishness, but you feel how you, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I get to leave. And they I don't. That. That's it. And, and they I don't, don't. That community never is the same again. Ever, ever, ever. It's not a month. It's not. We all are going to have bad things happen and we'll all grieve and it'll take some things a month, six months, five years to get over. But that community will will have Never. that have that have that stain on it for a hundred years. A hundred years. We drove to Florida at that time, and we'd stop. We were driving through Sandy Hook, that community, 
and you can just feel it. You feel we had to stop for gas. We had to stop for, I forget why we had to stop, but mm-hmm. it's just, it was just eerie. It was just eerie. You feel the heaviness of it. You feel like just the look on the people's faces. This was a few months after it had happened. And you were right that that community will never recover. Never. Yeah. And, uh, and there's just, there's so many layers to this. And again, I, I want to, I, you know, I, we'll play the Chris Murphy cuts. We'll play, you know, there's Steve Curry. He's got to go right before a, a Golden State game again. And he wants to bang the desk and and I'm here for it. But I want a, every politician on all sides, like, th- like, just be quiet. Like, they can't do it. They can't just be quiet for a day. They no. can't. And, and just hearing never again. This will never happen again. Yes, it will. It'll happen. It will. It'll happen a month from now, and none of and, and if it does, we'll shrug our shoulders and go. None of us. <sighs> none of us are shocked by this. Well, it was two years ago on this very day uh, that George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin in the company of other police officers in the great city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And when we started to see the footage of that video and we started to talk more about that particular scenario, um, we hoped, and we're 24 months removed from that that it would cause a sea change. And while I think we can make the case we're having more conversations, has that resulted in more action? I want to bring on Michelle Gross, who uh, formed Communities United Against Police Brutality uh, in the Minneapolis area, and she's kind enough to join Toronto today right now. Thanks for letting us track you down. It's uh, I know what a you know busy time it probably is because of this uh, significant anniversary. Thanks for, uh, for allowing us uh, a few minutes. Great. Thank you so much for having me today, Greg. When I say that, um, you know, and, and we talk about the subsequent reaction, when this happened at the time, when did you first get wind of it, see the video? And and I'm sure you, like many others, thought, kind of here we go again. Will there be justice here? What will happen? Will this, will this be result in acquittals? Will this even result in the proper charges? You had every right to be skeptical. A lot of people were. Absolutely. And um, what I'll never forget about that night is that I um, was people were texting me, you've got to see this video, you've got to see this video, I pulled up the video, I'm watching this video. And um, I looked at and realized that that was Derek Chauvin, I immediately recognized him. You know, I, um, I recognized Tutal because he even had his name on his uniform. And I was somewhat familiar with him, but I immediately recognized Derek Chauvin, because he was somebody that had been on our radar for many years. He, he was a problem child, so to speak. He um, had 26 complaints. He had been involved in four prior deadly force incidents. So, you know, that, that, that he did this to George Floyd should, come at, should have come as no surprise to anyone. So I'm looking at this video. I'm horrified. I'm thinking to myself, let me pull up all this guy's records and put them up on Facebook and let make sure everybody knows about this guy. And then at the same time, the television's on in the background and I'm watching the police information officer saying we had an arrest, you know, an incident this evening where we arrested a man and he had a medical emergency during the arrest and died. And I thought, medical emergency? That wasn't a medical emergency. That was a murder. And it was clear as a bell from that video that this was a deliberate act and, um, you know, really murder. No, no other name for it. You've been at this a long, long time. Have you have you done this? I was going to say really, but I know the answer. But to let our audience know, you've you've done this kind of work and been an advocate uh, for this for four decades. About that. Yes. Yes. I have been doing this a very long time. And, um, you know, what I did see, I have to tell you, when I first started doing this kind of work, people were, you know, people of color and poor people knew that police were a problem. 
other folks, not so much. And some of them would look at me like I had, you know, a, a new eye in the middle of my forehead or something. You know, they were just thinking, what is wrong with this woman that she's talking about these issues? But now, be, really, frankly, because first of Ferguson and then with, you know, this murder of Mr. Floyd and the all important video by mm -hmm. Darnella Frazier, all important video uh, by a bystander, because of that, people are actually recognizing that we have a problem and having to own that that problem exists and therefore having to own some solutions to it. You mentioned um, you, you wrote during the during the week after you wrote a 19 page document called What Will It Take to End Police Violence? Recommendations for Reform. Um, what were some of the bullet points that you had for that? Um, because clearly you've had an, an awful lot of conversations and you've pointed out before. A lot of times, and I think we just saw this in Buffalo in the last week, it gets politicized, it gets, you know, thrown around. It's a it's a political football for ice, all sides. But you'd look at it, and I'm sure our listeners would too, and go, wait a minute, what practically is going to happen here? Um, and and you you wrote this document the week of George Floyd's death. That's right, because um, we're part of a coalition. Our organization is in uh, our 22nd year. We're an all-volunteer organization, and we've been doing this work. We know this work here in the Twin Cities. And um, we work with several other organizations and people were talking about, oh my God, this is so horrible, what can we do? So we wanted to put together a document. And frankly, many of the ideas were not brand spanking new. They were ideas that we'd been telling the city and the state for a long time, but wanted to put them all together in one place in one document. And so um, we've got this document and there are things at various levels of the government that need to happen and things in the community, including, you know, legislation that needs to happen at the state, um, policy changes at the city and things like that. And the sad and frustrating part to me is that we haven't been able to get most of these recommendations across the finish line. The, there's just a huge resistance as if somehow the city feels that they can just wait it out. You know, the state feels like they can wait it out and everybody will just kind of go back home again. And I think they've been pretty surprised at the fact that that hasn't happened yet and that people still remain very engaged, you know, and people are still talking about solutions and don't want to go home until there's good solutions. When, when the when the funding comes out um, or sorry, when the slogan defund the police comes out, what did and, and it was there before George Floyd's death. What did you think about it? Some politicians described it as a little clunky, a little clumsy. Um, and I know it was obviously a mantra for a lot of people in Minneapolis and in, in my city here in Toronto and in other cities as well. What did it mean to you? And was it just was it misunderstood? And, and was that slogan in itself, Michelle, politicized? Well, I have to tell you that, what, that just a few days after Mr. Floyd was murdered, um, our city council, uh, most of the members of our city council, more than half, stood on the stage with an organization that wasn't really very involved in the community. That was a brand new organization that hadn't met with the community, hadn't talked to the community about what we want to have happen, didn't talk to any of the people that had been doing the work, and basically just came out with this slogan, we're going to defund the police. And um, I have to say that, you know, it didn't have any meat behind it. It didn't have any actual plans behind it. It also, you know, I think that, that that's terminology. Well, I certainly understand where people are trying to come from. I understand the feelings that people have. Um, that terminology in and of itself, it's got a marketing problem, frankly. You know, people don't know what it means. They, they you know, and, and also we've got a period where people, you know, I live in a city where there's violent crime and people don't want to feel unsafe. What they want is they want safety from you know, criminals and safety from criminal policing. 
And, you know, to say that we're just going to throw out the police without an alternative was very confusing to a lot of people. It wasn't um, received well from people. And in a way, I felt like it almost kind of put the movement back a little bit. But people understand that, that there are subtleties in the positions that people take. Our organization believes that there are functions that police are involved in that they shouldn't be involved in, like addressing mental health crises, like uh, dealing with homelessness, um, other social service needs. Those are areas where there are other professionals that are more appropriate to address those needs. But we do believe you know, that we do need policing. And I live in North Minneapolis, which is a neighborhood that sees a lot of um, you know, community crime. And people you know, want to be able to rely on policing for the investigations and potential for prosecution that they bring. But you know, we need to get them out of those other areas. And so that's an area we've done, been able to get a lot of progress in. We, for example, um, put together and got passed a law called Travis's Law that requires our 911 call centers across the state to refer mental health crisis calls directly to mental health crisis response teams. And we have those teams in all 87 counties of our state. They just weren't being used. So we're, we're doing those kinds of things, but not you know, with this kind of mantra of defunding because people don't wanna defund the police. They don't wanna ha have no police. They just don't want police to engage in criminal conduct and unconstitutional behaviors. Did um did justice get served in the in the Derek Chauvin trial? How do people of how do the people of Minneapolis feel about it? Was there a sense of relief washing over them? Did they you know obviously I mean the president of the United States weighed in before the verdict even came. Like it got attention and notoriety. Was justice served in the end? Well, I think that there was some measure of justice served. Um, certainly, Derek Chauvin got appropriate charges and he got convicted and has, I think, a fairly appropriate sentence. So what remains are the other three officers and their involvement. And most people sort of feel like, well, they were just kind of, they just didn't make him get up fast enough, or they were just kind of on the scene and they were new and this and that. But what they don't realize is if you look at the video that happened before Derek Chauvin showed up on the scene, these two officers, uh, Kuhn and Lang, went after uh, George Floyd with guns in his face. Now, this is a man who had arguably not even committed a crime. And he was just sitting in his car calmly. And these two cops come running up there, you know, with guns in this man's face. And that is excessive force. And what we haven't seen is a solid prosecution of those three other individuals. Um, I want to say one other thing about that. Mm -hmm. When the incident occurred, the video comes out. Now, that video is probable cause to arrest all four of those officers easily. But they took five days to arrest Derek Chauvin. In fact, they had to scrape him back from Florida. He managed to run down to his condo in Florida. Um, and so it took five days to Did arrest Did he take Derek a leave Chauvin. of absence or so, right after no, that? I don't, he just I don't took you off. know better than he me. He just took off. He, he just left. He slipped down. Okay. Um, and, and, and he's taken off to Florida. He's run away. The other four, the other three, rather, um, were not arrested for four more days after he was arrested and they had to bring two towel back. He was on his way to California. So, you know, people, part of the reason there was such a huge uprising here is people were like, wait, we just saw that and you didn't even arrest these guys. Mm -hmm. And our, and our um, county attorney even said, I looked at that video and I didn't see any criminal conduct. So there was an implication that they weren't even going to charge these guys. And that's when the town blew up because the system looked like it wasn't going to do what it needed to do. And well, let, me, let me put it this way. The community made them do it. 
what's the relationship now in Minneapolis between the citizens? I told you I, I've been a few times. I love going there. What's the relationship between the citizens and, and law enforcement now, two years later? It remains poor. It remains um, distrustful. Uh, it remains highly problematic because there have been officers who continue to engage in very bad conduct in the immediate aftermath after Mr. Floyd was killed. You know, there was an uprising here and there was a, a van full of officers, except that it was in an unmarked van um, and, and you didn't know they were officers. And they were just driving up and down um, a main thoroughfare here, Lake Street, and just shooting rubber bullets at people at random. And one gentleman um, that they, he was out with his friends guarding that friend's business from looting and so forth. And so he's out there and the, this, these guys start shooting at him and he's thinking it's these white supremacists that had come to town also. And he shoots back because he's a military guy and he's got a legal weapon and he shoots, he doesn't shoot them. He shoots in front of the van to just basically say, stop it and move on. The, the people that were in that van were cops. They came out, handcuffed him and then beat him savagely. And then they charged him with attempted murder on police. Even though all you know, the prosecutor had the video, knew what had happened exactly, and all of that, he was acquitted, and now he's sued, and he has, you know, his his brutal beating by these officers cost us a million and a half bucks. But those same officers all just retired with a big payout for quote unquote PTSD. So, and that's a big thing that's happening here. We've had over 150 officers take a PTSD payout here to the tune of about $25 million almost. So that's the other thing that's going on. It's crazy. And most of them are some of the worst actors in terms of, you know, bad conduct, lack of discipline, you know, um, costing a loss. Some of these guys, it's frankly a wild bargain to get rid of them because they've cost us so much in lawsuits. Yeah. you know, um, it's, 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 things are quite bad here still, I'm afraid to say. Michelle Gross is uh, kind enough to join us, uh, co-founder of Communities United Against Police Brutality. I, I don't know if you hear from them. I, I hear from police officers when we do a story, there's something about law enforcement and, and certainly something that's controversial. And they say, you gotta believe me. I'm one of the good ones. And there's a lot of bad ones in, but I can't do anything about it. I can't. And I, I get that aspect of it. If you're rank and file, um, I, if you had a problematic colleague or I had a problematic colleague, there's, um, you know, there's a methodology and there's a process, but um, it's, it's, there must be people who we, we won't get good people going into law enforcement and we need more good people in that system. We need to clean some of the system up, but we need good people to go in as well. And they won't do it if they're paired up with somebody they don't view as the same as them. That's exactly right. And, you know, you named it um, just now. It's the problem with the system. It's not about a bad apple and a good apple. Mm -hmm. It's about a bad system because it validates that conduct and allows it to continue. So one of the things that that our organization, for example, is doing is we have worked very hard with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights in their investigation of the Minneapolis police. They just came out with a very damning report. I mean, it is um, breathtaking in how honest it was. And now we're working toward a consent decree and we're gathering ideas from the community. We've literally talked to many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people even, um, to get ideas from them about what they wanna see in a consent decree. We're also working on systematic changes like we're part of um, committees on what's called the post board, which is the licensing agency for our state for law enforcement, trying to change the rules so that police have a code of conduct that they have to follow and that 
there can be action on their licenses when they don't follow it. So we're trying to make those systemic changes. And that is where you have to do the work. You can't just point at one officer and say, you know, he's bad, this other one's good or whatever. You've got to get at that system. And so that's a lot of the work that we do, you know, because we're never going to get to the place we need to be unless we get at the culture of that system, the policies, the practices, all of those things have to be addressed. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad. Well, I'm I'm glad we were having you on. I'm glad you're saying that because I think I think what you say is that that's part and parcel for Minneapolis, Toronto, Los Angeles, New York. That's how it should be in in every mid-sized to major city. That's how it has to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, we we aren't against law enforcement. In fact, we have a retired police officer on our board. You know, we Mm -hmm. um, will defend good officers that do the right thing. We've done that many times. But um, but what we have to see is professional constitutional policing. And that means addressing the system that is preventing that from happening. Do we have a different perception about um, whether or not there's um, an, an increase or a decline in police killings of African-Americans. The numbers I looked at say they're down, but again, they should be way, way, way more down than they are. And what we weren't able to do in the 60s and 70s when there may have been more of them is know about them, uh, know about the video of them, which you document, and then see whether or not we can we can bring um, you know people who commit those crimes, murders, manslaughters to to justice. Like it's a it's a hard thing in the media. It's the same thing as as uh, as as thinking. Well, are there more people that are racist now? No, I'm not sure there are, but there certainly are extreme examples of it that are on our newscasts every night. How do you view that? Well, you know, there's been pretty good documentation of police killings of uh, members of the community for probably about 15 or more years now, not so much by the government, which is where it's supposed to be done, Mm -hmm. but really by organizations like ours. For example, we have the definitive list of every single person that's been killed by law enforcement since 2000. And um, we used to have uh, roughly 15 people a year killed in this state by law enforcement. Um, It's last year was 26. It's appalling. Yeah. You know, it's really appalling. And so, um, you know, we know that statistically it's about 1,200 or so every year in this country, and it hasn't uh, really gone up or down. Uh, Maybe it's edged up a little bit in the last couple of years, but it really has not gone down appreciably. It seems to be the same. Um, You know, we've got a problem because we have qualified immunity in this country where Mm. it's a Supreme Court manufactured doctrine that says that if no one has ever done that same exact conduct, you know, maybe they beat the person up with their right hand and, and, and the cop that, that beat this other person up, beat them up with their left hand. And now they're suing and they say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's only unconstitutional if they beat you with your right hand, but if they beat you with your left hand, um, that's not, um, that, that never happened before. And there was no lawsuits about it. So we're going to give that cop qualified immunity. And so qualified immunity is a, uh, is a, like I said, judicially manufactured doctrine that prevents us from getting justice in many excessive force cases. And when you don't address the day-to-day excessive force, that's what leads to the climate that allows these killings to occur. So we've got to do something different. Michelle, I, I asked you how you felt with the George Floyd video at the start. I want to end by asking you, um, or and, and admitting on my part, I, I was a political science student and when in 92 when the Rodney King riots happened and, and when that trial happened. And and I'm a sucker because I, I thought that would change things. I thought that would universally change how we looked at policing and police conduct and police accountability. Um, I was 
dead wrong because we're talking about this 30 year. We just had the 30 year anniversary of the LA riots this past spring. Yes. When you think about that at the time, did you, you know, like, were you uh, naively hopeful like me that, that there would be differences? Like we'd take leap big steps forward from 1992 on. And I don't think we did. You know, I agree with you. And I think so much of it is, like I said, it's a it's a very um, intractable, d- difficult problem. It's one that requires a lot of attention and a lot of um, different uh, ideas about how to solve it. Some of that has got to come from the inside because you can't necessarily fix systems all from the outside. There's got to be people willing on the inside to, to make the kinds of changes that need to make. And we need to partner with those folks to... Um, get to some solutions. But you're right. Um, just knowing a problem is a bad problem isn't enough. You have to be thinking about what the specific solutions are. And they're rarely easy. You know, people want to say, well, if we just did X and we just did Y, you know, we'd solve all the problems. But most of these things are complex and have, you know, multiple solutions that need to be addressed. Um, and that's the kind of work we're trying to do. It's wonky. It's uh, detailed. You know, it's roll up your sleeves and dig your hands in kinds of work, but it has to be done um, because we have got to end this problem of um, killings of people of color and, and poor people. And we've got to address the problem of unconstitutional policing. It has to end. Hey, thank you so much, Michelle, for making time for our audience. And we really appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, I'm an instant fan of, uh, of your advocacy. And I, I hope when we have big stories like this, you'll let us uh, touch base with you again. Thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for paying attention to what's going on here in the Twin Cities. Thank you. That was superb. Thank you so much. That got you what you needed? Yeah, um, a million times over. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll um, we'll be able to put it on the show tomorrow and, and we'll uh, we'll link the organization in. And, and again, I can't thank you enough. Cool. You know, one thing, just an FYI, yep. um, is is this, um, like I said, we do work with a lot of other groups. And one of the groups we work with is a group that, um, that one of the people, you know, I work with a lot of families of people that have been killed by police. Yeah. And one of those families, a, a woman, um, her significant other was murdered by the police uh, in 2009. She started a group here called Families Supporting Families Against Police Violence. She'd be a great guest for you, too. Her name is Tashira Garraway. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to email, email me her contact information yeah. and I'm happy to yeah. reach out on, on moments like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And she really does a great job representing the families and what they need and so forth. So yeah, you know, it's kind of, cause I'm talking about the wonky solution stuff and she's puts the more emotional spin to it, you know? Yeah. But no, but you're, you're passionate about it. And it's, uh, you know, two years ago, it's like, it's, it, it felt like a sort of now or never time. Like, what are we going to do about this? Are we just, it, exactly. is this just another moment where we see the video and then, there's there's, a, you know, a demonstration and a riot because justice wasn't served. And and it's, it's still I, I get that that tension, you know, still remains there. We we have these debates here in Toronto about when there's a mental health situation, you know, like guys sending a SWAT team in for a mental health situation isn't great. But I also know we can't send somebody you know, with a, with a clipboard and a survey of questions, if they're holding a knife to somebody's right. knife, like, I mean, with, like there like, has to be some kind of hybrid solution here than bursting in the door and, and, and shooting guns right away. And and luckily there is, right. Yeah. That's the lucky part. We wrote, if you go on our website, we wrote a, a, um, a white paper on ending police only responses to mental health crisis calls. We spent a year writing that thing. It's 160 pages over 500 references. It's being used all over the country here now. And what it talks about is, co-response, um, you know, um, co-location embedding, you know, we, we've got a lot of different solutions in there, depending on like the size of the community, the situation. What you also have to know is that 0.1% of mental health crises 
involve um, a weapon or threat, 0.1. That means that 99.9% .9 of these things can actually be handled by a mental health crisis team. And the other thing is this, mental health crisis teams slow the whole situation down. So if things start escalating and there's things are a problem, they can call in the cops if they need to. You know, yeah. it doesn't preclude the cops from coming, but they shouldn't be the primary responders. Yeah, it, it makes and, you know, it takes it seems so hard to do in the public eye. Now it's like, hey, we weren't doing this right. So let's fix it. And nobody feels like nobody admits mistakes anymore, or makes themselves accountable. And it's just it, right, it's exactly. madness. You just keep plugging along going, no, we've had it right all along. Well, maybe you haven't. No, no. And, and, and even the op, a lot of cops now are, especially police leadership that's more advanced, are like, no, we don't want to be doing this stuff because 50 percent of the people that get killed by police are in the throes of a mental health crisis at a time. So this is the reason why we really had to address that. And, you know, we had like five people get killed between the, um, Thanksgiving and Christmas um, in this state in 2018 who were in the throes of a mental health crisis. Yeah. And that's yeah. when I just said, I can't take this anymore. We have got to. Um, address specifically these mental health situations and, and you see the videos and and they don't you know yeah. they, they often don't look like people that look like you and people that look like me and and it's easy to yell at the tv and go why are they resisting arrest well there's a really good reason why they're resisting yeah, arrest. They're scared to death. and you and i might not resist arrest because we'll get well, you know treated accountably and they're worried they won't and it escalates right. and it goes it all goes also, wrong from that point on if, if you're in a mental health crisis you know, or you don't understand the language or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a lot of other reasons why people don't do what they say and they don't do it. You know, with cops, they're taught that you know, people are supposed, you make the command and the people are supposed to follow it quickly and expediently. And if the person can't understand what the hell you're saying because they're artistic or they just don't respond yeah. fast, you know, because they're mentally ill, whatever. Um, or they're you know, drunk or there's something going like, or, right? Yeah, they're chemically impaired, whatever the case may be. Or they have a health issue, whatever's going on, diabetic, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that mentality of people have to comply or else and or else we get to do whatever the hell we feel like to them. That can't go on. That yeah. just can't go on. Hey, thank you so much, Michelle, for making time for our audience. And we really appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, I'm an instant fan of uh, of your advocacy. And I, I hope when we have big stories like this, you'll let us uh, touch base with you again. Thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for paying attention to what's going on here in the Twin City. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. We appreciate it. Back with a live show tomorrow on Thursday, the 26th of May. As we're that much closer to another weekend. We just had one. We get another one. That's how it works. Uh, and you can check us out live at 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app. Thanks so much for listening to us.